You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey, coach. Or maybe you're not a coach yet. Either way, you're in the right place because this episode is all about how to prepare for an instructional coaching interview. Now, I know in episode 20 at the end, I mentioned that I would be interviewing Sarah Jane from Enneagram and Coffee today, Um, but because of COVID-19 and all sorts of other um, things that have come up that have kind of taken our time (laughs) whenever you're kind of an independent work from home person, um, she has been unable to record that interview and we have to push it back. So I'm looking forward to talking to her at another time, but this actually gives me a really great opportunity to answer some of the questions that I've been getting. So in this case, we're talking about um, aspiring coaches or coaches who are ready for a change of schools and how they can prepare for a coaching interview. So first, I'm going to share a little bit about my own coaching interview, and then I'll share some important ideas and tips that can help you in preparing for your own interview. So I became an, a coach kind of by an odd process. I was a classroom teacher, but I was not looking to leave the classroom yet. Um, I enjoyed my job and I was excited to do it. And at the end of the year, we had made plans to loop up with our students to fourth grade. I was a third grade teacher. I had taught fourth grade my entire career. And that was the first year that I looped down to third or that I went down to third with my kids and I was going to loop back up to fourth grade. And so I had plans, you know, the school year had just ended. I think it was like the next week or the couple of days after the school year had ended. And I was making birthday balloons for my kids because I already knew their birthdays, right? So I was able to do these things. And um, I got a call from a parent from the past. I had taught two of her children in previous years and she was working at a different school. And she asked me to apply for an instructional coaching position. And so I went back and forth on that. And I finally I finally went ahead and applied because I was wanting to go just for the experience and kind of learn what they were looking for and see what that interview was like. So I didn't really have any time to prepare for the interview. And I wasn't worried about that because I, I wasn't expecting to try to get the job. I know that sounds silly. I just was looking for the experience of going on an interview. So I sat in the interview and I answered questions like, uh, what are some best practices that are important for reading and writing? How does Reader's Workshop and Writer's Workshop, how do these practices look for you? Um, How can you support test prep when you're teaching authentically? How would you work with a reluctant teacher? What would a 30, 60, 90 day plan look like? Uh, What are some leadership roles that you have served on your campus? What is your approach to classroom management? Things like that. And so I answered questions to the best of my ability. I just tried to connect like what I knew from working with students and colleagues to working with teachers. So I hadn't been in a coaching position, but I had done lots of professional development on my campus. I had served as a grade level leader and things like that. So I could try to apply that to working with teachers as a coach. And um, at the end of the interview, they said, we're not supposed to say this, but so far you are our choice um, for the instructional coach position on this campus. And I actually started to cry because I didn't want to leave my kids. Um, and I, I felt like I was abandoning them already. Just at that moment, I thought I'm a piece of me told me I had to go. Um, I already felt like I was being called to go to do this work in this school that had um, been kind of neglected, I guess, to a degree, not by all of the teachers who work there, but maybe by administration at higher levels. They felt like they hadn't gotten the support that they had needed there. And so I felt like I needed to go be part of that support. And um, so I cried in the interview because I just felt like I was going to have to go. And I really felt terrible about leaving my students. 
But then I did because I believed that was what I was being called to do. It's sometimes hard to explain or define when you feel that way. But that is what I felt after crying about it on a cruise for like a month. I, you know, we went on a cruise. I cried for, you know, a week on the cruise, cried for a month after that. And then I was like, I just I, I, I need to accept that this is what is best. So that was my experience. Yours is probably totally different from mine. But what can we take from that experience of, of my coaching interview well, it's not that I went in and I was super prepared and I had all the right answers and all the right buzzwords. I can say that they were looking for a real person who believed and cared about the work that they did. Um, so the first thing that you need to think about when you go into an interview is how you can show who you are as a person and as a teacher and who you can be as a coach and a leader on that campus. Hey coaches, I'm just gonna pop in here really fast because I wanna share something with you that I am so excited about. My course for elementary literacy coaches, The Confident Literacy Coach is live. It's up and running and you can get access to it right now. So here's the deal. When I started out as a coach, I struggled. I had trouble defining my role and communicating it with teachers and administration. And I honestly didn't even know that was something I was going to have to do. I dreaded PLC days because getting my teachers to collaborate, to speak the same language and create lesson plans together was a total nightmare. And I was so stressed out by modeling and co-teaching in classrooms that I actually avoided it for a long time. It was not a happy time for me, <laughs> but things got so much better. I figured out processes to help my teams of teachers work together. I focused on best practices in reading and writing and identified some high impact strategies to support alignment on my campus. And I began to spend more time in classrooms after I planned thoroughly with teachers before lessons. Basically, I started coaching with confidence. I've collected all the processes and tools that I used to do this work and I've put it all together in one place so you can coach with confidence too. The Confident Literacy Coach is your one-stop shop for everything literacy coaching in elementary school. You'll learn how to define your role and communicate it to your administrator, what best practices you should spend your time on, and my process for collaborative planning, plus so much more that will take your coaching life from frustrated and overwhelmed to effective and confident. You can check it out at Buzzing with Miss com. Just click the Confident Literacy Coach at the bottom of the latest post and you'll learn exactly what's in the course and why it will change your coaching for the better. I can't wait to see you there. So, I mean, the tip, if I say tip number one is to be yourself, that's super corny, right? It's like one of the most corny things I could say. And I don't like cheesy stuff, but it's actually true to say that you have to be a real person in these interviews. I've participated in many interviews, not for coaches, but for other positions. And whenever I listen to people that don't sound like I can't get a sense of who they are from the way that they speak and the examples that they give and what they care about and think that is important, it's hard for me to recommend that person for hire because I don't really know who I'm hiring. I can tell you what they said that they could have read out of any textbook, but I need to see that you're a real person. And if you're gonna work with teachers, you'll need to be a real person. You can't build relationships if you're a robot, right? Basically, you need to have personality on these interviews. So what are some ways that you can, quote, be yourself on an interview? Well, I mean, if you're funny, be funny. Don't push the envelope too much, <laughs> but you can be funny. If you're sweet, be sweet. If you're smart, be smart. If you're all of those things, you can be all of those things on your interview. Don't be afraid to show up as the real person that you are. You and the interviewer together are deciding whether this school is going to be a good fit for you. So in business, we talk a lot about attracting and repelling. So if I try in business 
to serve everybody's needs. If I'm like, I'm a, a K-12 teacher and I was a coach and I support teachers in the classroom teaching all subject areas plus special ed, plus dys- dyslexia services, plus, uh, and, and I'm supporting instructional coaches as well. If I'm spreading myself so thin, people look at me and they go, mm, you're not really a specialist in anything. You can't really serve me, right? You're not going to serve my needs. You're going to be talking about too many different things that don't support me. But if I say I serve instructional coaches, especially in the area of literacy and K-5 teachers who work in literacy, those people know what I do and what I stand for, right? That's the attracting and repelling. We want to make sure the right people are are getting onto our, our train, right? It's the same thing when you're going to apply for a position. You don't want to be afraid to find out that this school isn't a good fit, If you don't get a position at a school, it might not be that you're not qualified. It might not be that you didn't answer questions well or do any of the things we're supposed to do well in an interview. It could be that that school and you are not a good fit together. And sometimes it's kind of like you dodged a bullet, really, um, because you don't want to be part of a place that isn't going to reflect your values or give you the opportunity to do the work that you believe is important. You don't want your first coaching experience to be miserable because you misrepresented what you believe in who you are. There are some things that are not worth sacrificing to get in the door, is what I believe. Um, So in interviews, I have explicitly said things like, you know, I actually do not believe in using the accelerated reader program. I just put it out there. Um, I will say things like, as an instructional coach, I believe it's really important to focus on the work of coaching. And I believe that doing work around the GT program can take you from that coaching work and you end up doing a lot of testing and paperwork and things like that. And so I feel like that would not be something that I would want to take on as a new coach on this campus. And it's kept me from working in places that I don't philosophically agree with. It's a great way to do it, be a screener um, and make sure that you both are in the same place about a lot of things. So for example, AR, I specifically have told a principal in the past, I'm sorry, I, I don't believe that the school would be a good match for me because I do not believe in using AR in the classroom. I think it is frequently misused and I don't want that to be the focus of my reading instruction. Um, and it kept me from working at a school that I I didn't believe in, in that practice. Of course, schools are... are are fluid and can change. But um, at the time, that was a big part of their program. And that was not part of my program. <laughs> so so I, I just said that's I just think it's okay to say the truth and to be honest and say what you believe. And it might take you a few interviews to find the school that's a good match for you. But I sincerely believe that that is better than being a place in a place that is mismatch. Um, because that creates a lot of misery and frustration. So some things that are really good to show in an interview, if you have possess these traits, are resiliency, the idea that we're always learning, that we want to keep growing as individuals and showing how you do that. For example, do you read professional literature? Do you um, attend trainings on your own time? That sort of thing. Um, are you knowledgeable? in your practices that that are best practices that you would be sharing with teachers and modeling? Are you hardworking? Are you a good team member and a good communicator? Those are so important uh, when you're getting started in instructional coaching. Are you motivated to do the work and to give a little bit extra if that's what needs be sometimes? And are you self-directed? Coaches have to plan out and schedule a lot of their own time. So in terms of looking at your calendar, your day might have a few things that are required of you. And then beyond that, you are figuring out how to make things happen in, your t- in the timeframes that you have available. So if you're not self-directed, 
it, if you're waiting for someone to tell you what to do all the time, you're not going to be a very effective coach. So if you can show these qualities by showing stories of you in action during your interview, that's a good way for people to see that you would be a good fit for a coach. So a few things that you want to prepare for, I'm going to share a few different topics um, that you may want to look into if you feel like these are some areas that you're maybe not as well versed in. This could be a good place for you to investigate. Um, So that way, whenever you go on interviews, you're prepared to answer questions around these topics. And I actually have a... um, a free download for you that you can check out in the show notes about preparing for a coaching interview with some questions around different subjects that you may be asked in the interview. And so this is more of like topics and things that you want to be prepared to talk about. But um, those questions are specific questions that you may be asked that you could actually think about your answers to. So you're sort of prepared with examples because being specific and showing examples is always going to be better than speaking in generalities. If you speak in generalities, people do not know what you know and can do. That was my experience. If someone did not give me specifics in an interview, I did not feel confident hiring that person because I wasn't really sure what they knew or could do. So specifics are going to be your best bet. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things you can prepare for and then think back through your own teaching experience um, or coaching experience if you've already been a coach and pull out examples of those things so that you can be prepared to get questions around them. So the first thing you want to be prepared for is a good solid foundation of best practices. So as a coach you're responsible for being a resource for the teachers in terms of best practice and because we're always supporting and pushing you want to make sure that you're prepared to do that um, really uh, in a knowledgeable way. You don't have to know everything but you need to know Um, what best practices are, and that way you can actually look into them further and learn about how to apply them in different grade levels or in different content areas. So um, whenever you don't have experience of those areas, best practices are even more important. For example, if I've never taught first grade, but I've taught third grade, first grade and third grade look very different, but I do know what's important about reading instruction, and I need to learn more about how to apply that in first grade. But if I don't have those basic tenets and frameworks, then I'm gonna be starting from scratch with learning um, what first grade should look like. So here are some things that you may need to look into, especially if you're an elementary teacher or middle school teacher, depending on um, your content area, So, uh, or a coach as well. So you may need to learn about like reader's workshop, writer's workshop, math workshop, those frameworks. The 5E model might be something that you're asked about that is frequently used in science, especially and often in math. Um, And it's a very good model of instruction that consists of five steps and each one starts with an E, like engage, explore, explain. And so that's a really great um, tool for, for planning out lessons and units. Reading and writing across the curriculum is essential no matter what grade level you teach or what content area you teach. Diverse texts and literature is so important. Uh, We need to expose our kids and our teachers to being thoughtfully um, selective of the materials that they expose kids to and to show kids different kinds of literature so they have windows that expose them to ideas that are different than their own, as well as mirrors that reflect their own lives. Culturally responsive teaching is, it's a buzzword that's really um, out there a lot right now, but you want to actually know what it means and value that work because it's important work that teaches us how to work with people who are possibly different than ourselves and to ensure that they are getting equity in the classroom and, and, a, and an approach that values them. So really look into that and do some learning around that area if that's something you're unfamiliar with. 
Uh, classroom management, of course. Some teachers struggle with classroom management so much that that is what impairs their ability to really um, create a community and of, of learners in that classroom. So you may be supporting teachers with classroom management as, as a coach. And then best practices that are relevant in content areas and grades that you haven't taught because these practices transfer. Things like engagement. And I'm not talking about doing, you know, like you don't have to do an escape room or a room transformation to have student engagement. Engagement looks different in every classroom, but as long as you have some good solid practices for engagement, for responses, for student processing, then you can transfer those practices to other subject areas. Technology use, of course, especially right now, you, being able to use technology not as an enhancement to a lesson, but as a way to actually teach something in an authentic and purposeful way is so essential. Um, so if you are, for example, if you are um, a new literacy coach or you're moving into becoming a literacy coach, I actually do have a course that could be really helpful to you. Uh, it's called the Confident Literacy Coach, and it gives you the tools and the processes that you need in order to be an effective coach. So if you're looking into moving into that area in the fall, that might be a good place to start to build up your repertoire of strategies and an approach that's going to be supportive of you as a new coach. And you can find that, you search for Confident Literacy Coach, and uh, you can also check it out at buzzingwithmissb.com. So we want to be prepared to show what all of these practices look like in action and how they are valuable. Because whenever people say, oh, yes, I do Reader's Workshop, mm -hmm, mini lessons, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they don't know what they don't express what that looks like, it makes me doubt whether they really know what that is. <laughs> so I need to see as an interviewer, I need to hear from you, what do these practices look like in action so that I can confirm that you really are on the same page uh, philosophically or, you know, um, with, with our faculty or with, or with the direction that we're wanting to head. Another topic that you're going to want to be ready to do some thinking about is authentic quality approach to test prep. So depending on your role, you may not be responsible for doing a lot of this, but I know that on, on my campus and many of the coaches that I have worked with, they are responsible for making sure that teachers are prepared to bridge quality instruction to test preparation and to do that in an authentic and meaningful way. So it's silly, honestly, to say, oh, we're just not going to do test prep. I just don't believe in that. One way or another, you are going to prepare for that test. It might not be, and hopefully it will not be, <laughs> handout after handout all year of multiple choice and strategies, like test taking strategies. But you are going to teach the content kids need to learn in an authentic way. You will build in practice and independence. And then we need to teach them how to apply it into a test taking situation, especially our younger students. So um, how can you do that? through teachers. If you walk into a classroom and a teacher is is um, hugging her her practice booklet for the test to her chest and it's like the first day of school and they're already starting to dig into those multiple choice passages, how are you going to support that teacher in creating engaging strategies and a connection through authentic teaching and then build that bridge to test prep? Think about a plan that you would use kind of school-wide to support the teams in moving in that direction. Which kind of brings me to my next idea, creating a support plan. So whenever you're a coach, you have to think about what kind of plan would I use to support teachers across the campus? Because there's a lot of teachers. And if you only wait for people to come to you, you are not going to get to everybody. Now, some campuses will tell you, you just are here to support teachers who are interested in your support. And if that is the case, this is a completely different animal. But if you are responsible for professional learning on that campus, as I was, you really have to do some thinking about how you're going to make that accessible to teachers and how you're going to make sure that teachers are interested and engaged to do that learning. So 
creating a support plan, the question might sound different. Sometimes it might sound like, what is a 30, 60, 90 day plan? Which is what I was asked. (laughs) And then um, it could look like, you know, how will you uh, create a plan to provide support in classrooms? How will you ensure that teachers are getting the support they need? Things along those lines. So you can involve model classrooms where you set up one classroom and really use that classroom as a way to support other teachers and coming to do observations and and dialogue about what they've seen. Um, You could talk about the coaching work in classrooms that you plan to do, such as modeling, co-teaching, how you will identify teachers who need your support, how you will get teachers on board with that support is a really important part of the first 30 days in that plan. Building relationships, which is the next thing I'm going to talk about, is really going to be a main focus of your first 30 days. And you may also talk about what professional development or professional learning opportunities you're going to provide in that 30, 60, 90 day framework. Um, Initially, I've tried to start with an area that I felt like teachers kind of knew a little bit about and I could enhance it because I didn't want it to seem like I was dumping over everything that they knew and asking them to start over with something brand new just because a coach walked in, a new coach. So instead, I thought, well, my first workshop is going to be about reader's workshop, but I'm going to focus on one of the components. And because I feel like teachers have had experience with shared reading in some way, I'm going to start there and just try to help them learn about the best practices around shared reading. So that was part of my plan. I started with kind of a known and then I branched out into areas that were a little less familiar, such as um, like mini lessons and guided reading. And that's kind of how I moved through the 30, 60, 90 days as far as my professional learning plan went. But really working with teachers one-on-one to introduce your role and to, to create relationships where teachers know that you can support them individually is a good place to start when you're thinking about individual uh, support. So building relationships is the next thing that you may be asked about. And this is one of the most essential things that you need to do as a coach is to build relationships with teachers. I actually just recorded an episode with Nita Creekmore of Love Teach Bless, and that's coming out in July. Uh, There are tons of great ideas for building relationships that will support your work with teachers. And so this is something you really want to do some thinking about how you can build relationships with teachers that are authentic, that create trust, that um, help them know what your role is and what it's not, and will help you get in that classroom so you can actually impact positive change. So this also includes resistant teachers, right? Um, So not everybody likes the phrase resistant teachers, so you may refer to them as something different. Um, But basically the idea is that teachers are not always interested in working with you (laughs) or with me. And you have to think about how can I work with this teacher? What can I do in order to... um, get in that door and support this person and make an impact in the classroom. And so um, there's actually, I will, I will link this for you to the, um, in the show notes to a five day challenge for coaching resistant teachers in case you're interested. Um, It actually introduces how you rebuild or build relationships with people who have not really been interested in working with you in the past. Um, How you kind of move through that towards working on goal setting and classroom support. And it's, it's a simple challenge that you can complete, but it'll give you some really good ideas. So that's something you could look into if you're unsure, because sometimes the, que- the question is frequently asked, how would you work with a resistant teacher or a teacher who is resistant to coaching? Another thing that you might have to think about is management of your materials and time. So like I mentioned before, coaches need to be fairly self-directed 
you will be directed in some areas, but in some ways you will have to figure out where to spend the majority of your time. So goal setting is really important. Um, having some areas of focus instead of just kind of swimming through tons and tons of stuff and hoping that you're making an impact um, is an important way to schedule your time. So you really need to also be fairly organized because coaches manage a lot of resources and just moving from classroom to classroom is an easy way to lose all of your stuff. <laughs> um, I can't tell you how many times a kid approached me and said, Miss Beltran, you left your calendar in our room. And then he would bring up the calendar or Miss Beltran, you left your coffee cup in your room. You need to be kind of on, on it. Not that you're not going to lose things, but you need to be able to manage your own materials, have consistent tools. I know somebody that every time um, anyone asked her for something, she would grab a sticky note and just write on it. And then the sticky note would end up anywhere. There was no place to put them. So they would just like it end up on the floor and get thrown away. They would end up in a notebook that was never opened again. Um, and that is not exactly going to instill confidence in your teachers if you can't follow through on the promises that you've made. And if you're too disorganized, you can't follow through. So you need to stay organized and be fairly self-directed and be prepared to share that in an interview, maybe what your plan is to do that. Um, another idea that you really need to be good at is data. And everybody loves to talk about data. Um, superficial conversations about data. I mean, we can say things like, well, we use it to direct instruction. How do we use it to direct instruction? What do you do? What is your process for reviewing data? What do you consider? Do you just look at numbers? Do you look at question types? Do you consider the possible reasons for students choosing different answers? Do you use it? What, what's your cutoff for reteaching? What's your cutoff like, you know, percentage-wise? Do you reteach the whole class if 20% of the students don't get that question right? Do you reteach the whole class if 80% of the students don't get it right? Do you use small groups to differentiate? There's a lot of things to think about around data, but having a good solid approach to how data is used in your classroom or in your grade level can be helpful uh, when you're interviewing for an instructional coaching position because you will probably be one of the people who facilitates those data meetings. A really important topic that you may be asked about is what leadership roles have you served even if you have not been a coach yet? So this happens a lot. I get questions from teachers. I want to be an instructional coach, but I'm not sure how do I learn about being a coach before I can become one, right? Which I get it. That is it's frustrating um, if you're not given a lot of leadership opportunities. So I'm gonna share a few different leadership roles that you may already have undertaken and not even realized. And then if you haven't undertaken any of these and you're looking to become a coach and you feel like you're hitting a brick wall, definitely talk to your principal and say, you know what, I'm interested in becoming an instructional coach and I would love to take on a leadership this role this year this year, so I can try it out and, and apply some of these things that I'm learning so that I will be better prepared and I'll be a better team member on my campus. So here are some leadership roles that you could look into if you haven't already done them. You may be a mentor to a new teacher, maybe in your grade level or your content area. You may be a mentor teacher to a student teacher or an intern. That is a leadership role because you're responsible for teaching people how to do the things that you are currently doing. You might be the head of a cadre, a committee, or team. So for example, if you have a writing team or if you have a um, sunshine committee on your campus, that is the start of a leadership role and you can do as much or as little with that role as you want to do. So if you wanna make that role into something bigger, I'm sure that you can if you find ways to use that leadership. 
You might serve as a grade level lead or a lead teacher in your content area. I know that whenever I was in the classroom, I used to attend district meetings and they would send one person from each grade level from each school and then we had to take that content back and reteach it to our, our colleagues. So that was one leadership role that I had served on my campus. You may be responsible for planning school events, like fundraisers, like if you're on PTO or PTA. You may also just do fundraisers for your school independently of any organization like that. And so if you create or plan school events, maybe family nights, um, you know, special readathons or anything like that, those are all leadership roles that you've undertaken that will be supportive of you as a coach. You might even create initiatives that the school ends up adopting. And so I know that on my campus as a teacher, I would see areas of need and I would go talk to my principal and say, could we try something like this? And most of the time he'd say, I love it, let's try it. And we would try it as a campus um, if it's something that had been working for me in my classroom or our grade level. So if you create initiatives that your school ends up adopting, um, then that's a really good indicator that you are doing things that are changing instruction on your campus. So that can serve to as, as kind of evidence for you as a leader. If you help other teachers plan, look at data, or make changes to their instruction, those are leadership roles. So for example, I was working one year with a teacher who was new to our campus, and she was really struggling with some math instruction. We sat down, I looked at her student math tests, and we figured out what she could do to address some of those areas that she was seeing kids consistently struggle in. Um, so that's a leadership role. It's one-on-one, -on -one, but that's the coaching work. So le being a leader doesn't always mean you're standing up in front of the school and telling them what to do. Actually, that's the least of being a leader. The most of being a leader is working with people to help them make changes. If you've written curriculum, that's another really valuable leadership role that you've taken on. Um, you might write curriculum for your school or for your grade level or for your entire district. And so if you've participated in a scope and sequence committee or a curriculum writing committee, make sure that you mention that during your leadership, during your um, explanation of leadership as well. And any kind of district level stuff. If the district has brought you in as a presenter for special workshops for the rest of the, the district, that is a leadership role that you've had. And that is also experience in providing professional learning and professional development. So you want to mention that for sure. The last area that I think you should be prepared on is how you will address issues of equity, diversity, and privilege as an instructional coach. So some of the questions around that idea might sound like, how will you work with teachers whose culture and race is different than yours? How will you coach in classrooms where the language is different than one, the one that you speak? I, for example, am pretty much monolingual in English. I do speak some Spanish, but it's very limited. I can read it better than I can speak it. And I can read it at maybe like a second or third grade, maybe third grade level. <laughs> so in that case, I was going to coach in classrooms where Spanish was the language of instruction the majority of the day. And so I actually had to get more fluent at the very least in my listening comprehension in Spanish. I improved that language a lot, just the listening comprehension part. And I'm very good at putting together cues to understand what's going on. But if I couldn't do that, how would I support those teachers? I have to be ready to support everybody on my campus, not just the people who are like me. So I had to really learn very quickly about content area vocabulary, and I had to bring my tools with me if I needed to, to provide me support. I had friends at the ready to text and say, How, what does this mean? How do you say this? So I could make sure that I was prepared to support those teachers, even in that content, even in that different language than my own. So we have to sometimes go the extra mile as coaches to meet the needs of our teachers, no matter where they are, and whether that's in a different language or not. 
um, really think about what does Title I mean to you as well? I have seen a lot of people use Title I as a synonymous term for um, like uh, black or brown schools, I guess, is kind of the way they're using it. And that is not, you know, Title I means a lot of different things. And um, like, for example, in the city that I live in, the majority of schools are Title I. There are very few schools here who are not Title I. And the major- and so therefore the districts are Title I districts. The majority of schools have a good percentage of students on free or reduced lunch. And actually at the school that I worked at, everybody was on free lunch because enough of, I think it was like 80% or 85, 90% of the kids were on uh, free lunch. So then they just offered to everybody. So I don't, I, I guess I have a different impression of what Title I is after having that experience. To me, I didn't I didn't even know for most of my career that there was such a thing as schools that were not Title I. Um, I, I thought that was just where some of the funding came from. I didn't realize that being a Title I school was a thing. So whenever people would introduce themselves and say, oh, I work at a Title I school as if that was something special or to be commended, I was kind of confused by that. I was like, yeah, you and me and everybody else in this city, right? Um, so... Something to think about is what does that mean to you? Are we using it to to pass judgment or to group kids and schools into a category that doesn't really have the meaning that we think that it has? So it's just sometimes we have these biases that we have to do some unpacking on um, or unpacking of before we can go talk to somebody else about them. Because in that moment, you might realize, you know what, I really don't know what I think about this. So one person that I can recommend is Elena Aguilar, and she's actually written Um, The Art of Coaching and The Art of Coaching Teams. And those books are excellent because she does address issues of privilege and race and equity and diversity in um, throughout her book because she says that whenever she's coaching, she is always coaching for equity because that is that is her ultimate goal. It's for kids to have equitable opportunities in school and for teachers to have those as well. So I really recommend looking into that book. And she also has one coming out in August called Coaching for Equity. So that might be a really great place to start your learning about this area if it's something that you're unfamiliar with or you haven't really done as much thinking around to this point. So, okay, you also want to be prepared to ask questions of the person that you are being interviewed by. Because like I mentioned before, you want to make sure that this school is a good fit for you. So a couple of things that you might want to ask are what roles and responsibilities do coaches have on this campus? Is this role going to be different than the coaching role in the past? Or is this pretty much what the coach did in the past? Um, How would I spend most of my time? Am I going to be in a lot of designated meetings? Am I going to be assigned to cover classes? Those kinds of of activities that can take away from coaching work sometimes are necessary. But if that's the bulk of your time, you would want to know that 90% of the time you're going to be spending in the book room, right? (laughs) You want to know if you're going to be able to do coaching work. What frameworks does, does this campus use for content instruction or for management? Um, what are main goals for the campus as a whole for growth? Are you looking to grow in a specific area? Are you looking to grow in a specific approach? Or are you looking like is, is test scores what this campus cares about at the expense of everything else? You really need to know these things before you start working somewhere. 
I mean, sometimes we don't get honest answers or maybe they think they're being honest, but they don't know. So they're like, no, no. Well, this is we believe in this, that and this. But then whenever you start working there, you're kind of like, this is not exactly the way it was described to me. But at least during an interview, you can put those things out there and ask the questions so you can get an idea of what's happening. Um, Also, like what does PLC look like can be very telling. If PLC looks like grade levels meeting on their own without the support of an instructional coach, that tells you one thing. If PLCs look like um, actually faculty meetings, so there's really no community or learning going on, that tells you another thing, right? So we want to make sure that we know what the learning on this campus looks like and what the expectations of the administration are going to be for this coaching position before you even start, because you might not want to accept a position that isn't in line with what you want. So those are my main points that I think you should think about um, before you go on a coaching interview to help you prepare. And I really hope that this in, this information was helpful to you, whether you're applying for a first-time position as a coach or you're wanting to move from your school to another school um, or maybe another content area or another grade level so that you can try um, coaching at a different level. So definitely check out that download on the show notes at buzzingwithmissb.com and you can look up episode, this is... Um, episode 21 of the coaching podcast and use that as a guide to get you started. So I recommend also that you can practice with a buddy. So I've got that interview download for you and you can actually communicate with a partner, practice some questions, be ready to dig back into your brain for examples, because that is actually a really good way to be prepared for an interview, especially if you expect to be really nervous. (laughs) So main takeaway for you, an interview is meant to match you with a place that you should be. So be prepared to highlight what's best about yourself, but don't be afraid to show who you are to make sure you are a good match for this school. And my next episode will actually support you in being prepared for an interview too. It's going to help you define your coaching role. So if you don't have a position yet, this will help you think about the kind of coach that you want to be. And it will give you some ideas about questions that you might want to be prepared for that are around the role and responsibilities of an instructional coach. So I hope to see you next week. Happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.